welcome to the Sociology and Animals podcast series. In this program, we speak with folks specializing in the sociological study of animals and society in an effort to document and explore how research in our field is applied in the real lives and careers of sociologists. My name is Dr. Corey Wren. I'm currently chair of the Animals and Society section of the American Sociological Association. But this podcast is coming to you from Canterbury, England, where I have been living since 2019 after accepting a position as lecturer in sociology with the University of Kent. Here in the UK, I am a member of the Animal Human Studies Group of the British Sociological Association, as well as the Vegan Society's Research Advisory Committee. In addition to teaching environmental politics, social movements, and animals and society at the University of Kent, I'm also co-director of the Center for the Study of Social and Political Movements and a member of the psychology department's Shark Lab, which stands for the Study of Human-Animal Relations at Kent. As you can see, I have had the great privilege to develop my career around various facets of animal studies, but it hasn't been easy. Our field is growing, but it is still small and doesn't always elicit support from colleagues, prospective employers, editors and reviewers, grant funders, and so on. My aim with this podcast is to challenge this institutional discrimination and provide some insider insights into making a career out of animal studies. Not that long ago, the idea of a career in animal studies would have seemed impossible, if not outlandish. Today, there are considerably more opportunities, but a lot of mystery and ignorance remains about how to go about pursuing and succeeding in this line of work. Especially with academia being so competitive and prestige-oriented, I think a lot of folks are hesitant to discuss the nuts and bolts of their career making. It is my aim that this podcast will serve as a sort of informal virtual mentorship for folks interested in learning more about the sociological pursuit of animal studies. So without further ado, let's meet today's guest. Welcome, Zoe. What's the word? Hi. Uh, well, so I'm a, a sociologist studying human-animal studies, as you can imagine. I, I finished my PhD last year, so I'm pretty new. I was a little bit hesitant when you asked me about this because I feel like I haven't had a traditional animal sociology job, but I have had a lot of different jobs in our gig economy and I am the co-convener of our Australian Sociological Association Sociology and Animals group that I started with a few other sociologists. And I'm also the co-founder of our new International Association of Vegan Sociologists with you, Corey. Very exciting to have that going. Um, so yeah, so I think mostly my story has been about trying to find little ways to pursue animal sociology and work kind of studies of animals into lots of various jobs that I'm doing so I can cobble together kind of an animal research trajectory that's for animals while still paying my bills and supporting my non-human animals and all of those things. So that's kind of my story. Yeah, I think that's pretty much the story of a lot of folks. And I would say almost everyone I've interviewed thus far has been said the same, like I've not got traditional training in this and I don't really do this or that. And that's kind of the nature of, of our field is that we're growing. And so the aim with this podcast is to kind of give some encouragement to folks who are interested in this topic and also to emphasize that we're coming from all different spots and we're heading in different ways and we have different specializations and we really have to carve a space out for ourselves as you, you said you were doing. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you should feel in any way that you don't like imposter syndrome or something like we all we all feel like that because we are all just kind of fighting scrambling in order to um, make non-human animals visible in our field so that's totally commendable so how about this what is it about sociology do you think is conducive to this pathway to studying animals 
Uh, I really like, I mean, it always comes back to that taking everyday things and, and making them look different and making them look new so we can critically analyze them. And when I was an undergrad, before I even became an animal sociologist, um, I'd come from animal industries. So I'd been working in like dog groomers and pet sitting and volunteering at animal shelters and things like that. So when I was doing my undergrad, I was really looking for a discipline that I could use to study animals in the way that I wanted to. And I went through a bunch of different ones. I went into like a law degree and hated that. And I tried a lot of different things. And when I found sociology, I think it was really that we had the capacity to look at kind of those micro relations and question that taken for granted kind of way of relating, but also look at macro power structures. And through that structure and agency relationship, start to think about how these things might work together. So I think find me the answers that I wanted to look at in how we relate to animals in quite problematic ways. So that was really what drew me to sociology to begin with, I think. Well, could I take you back then to law? Because animal law is something that is also growing as a field. And for me, I've always kind of been like, mm, you know, because I, I had my master's and my PhD in sociology. So I'm pretty, I've been pretty firmly in sociology for some years now. And so when I think about law, I'm like, well, who, who are these laws actually serving? I mean, they serve elites, they serve the state. That's the whole point of the legal system. That's the whole point of the policing and all that kind of stuff. And I have a colleague who specializes in animal law and has really, really been pushing me to start paying attention to what's going on in that field. And so I, like in an effort to do that, I started watching, there's a series going on right now as this, be, this is being recorded called Animal Law Bites. It's being held by the UK Animal Law Center. And so I've been tuning in to that every Wednesday and no offense to them because I know they're, they're doing what they can in their field, but I find my eyes glazing over sometimes because it's just like they're working within this little limited capacity to try to make animals matter in a system that does not even see them as persons. And here we are in a situation where rivers, I think in New Zealand, right, there's a river that's been deemed a person. And in the United States, corporations are persons. And we still don't even have animals listed as persons. And it just seems like all they can do is try to slightly improve welfare that in the long run, in the larger scheme of things, doesn't really accomplish much as far as reducing animal suffering. Is, so maybe I'm kind of going off on a tangent there, but what is it about law that you said, okay, maybe I need to go to sociology. Law is not really doing it for me. Uh, that's exactly what it was. I think when I came in, like a lot of undergrads, you kind of think, oh, I'm going to learn and I'll be a lawyer and then I'll be able to change the legal system so it will be better for animals and it'll reflect animals. And the more I got into it, and there are people doing very good work and I'm sure they're doing a lot of things that I don't understand. But when I was in it, it very much seemed like the laws were there to reflect a society and society's values and I thought society's values were crap about animals. They need changing and they need to be kind of fundamentally changed in a way that I didn't see a path for doing through the legal system. So when I got to sociology and we were learning about Marx and kind of big, broader scale challenges to power structures, I thought this is exactly where I need to be. We need to start unthinking some of these problematic things and actively finding ways to challenge them and, and root them out in society so that we can actually see what we're up against. And yes. Yeah, no, no, uh, not to knock the law people, but yeah, that's kind of one of the tensions with sociology, although there is certainly a subfield of um, sociologists who look at the law and states and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah, it, we, we tend to be a little bit more macro scale um, and also critical of the fact where does the legal system come from in the first place. Um, but what about, um, so back to sociology, 
I just kind of wanted to highlight law for folks who might be interested in this, that there is definitely room for overlap. But what is it about sociology? Like, what is, can you maybe think of one concept or theory or theorist or even a publication that you think really highlights what sociology can do for other animals? What really gets you going? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's kind of two main ones that come to mind. I feel like the first thing that grabbed me in sociology was maybe a little bit of a strange one because now I really like that macro critical animal study stuff, but Alga and Alga did an ethnography of a cat shelter. And because I'd come from pet industries and things, I was trying to find ways that we could really center animals in research. And I just think that if we're actually looking at animals, then when we, when we study them and we center them, we start to think of them in different ways. And I always had this bugbear with research around companion animals, which is that often we talk about animals as family and companion animals as kin. And coming from industries where you see people who bring in, you know, animals that are matted to the skin and are treated very badly and often have kind of injuries from the banal neglect that we have. And we have industries that are made to clean them up and send them back again. I was really interested in how our perspective on pets might change if we centered them. So the first thing I really came across was Alga and Alga's ethnography of a cat shelter, which did a really interesting way of centering animals and highlighting cat culture and the ways that animals can have social structures and things like that. Yes, that's actually kind of a critique, I think, of sociology is that we're so human centered. That's one of the reasons we have to scramble people like you and I to have our work recognized is because the field of sociology is about society. And it's this assumption that it's people are and people are humans. And I think that this is one of the cool you're right. One of the cool things that social sociology folks doing animal stuff are doing is is pushing back on that and saying that. Uh, all these things that we claim that define human society is distinctly human. We can apply that to other animals as well. Can, what is? Can you tell me a little bit more about what is cat culture? What is cat culture? Yeah. So many things. Um, so many things. I think one of the things that really stood out to me is when they were talking about the social roles of cats, because their ethnography is in a free roaming cat shelter, so you get to see how cats react and how they relate to their environment and the social roles they kind of prescribe each other when they're actually given the space to have this, because often animals don't have the space to make these sort of social organizations where we can see them because you have one cat in a house or one dog in a house and you don't think about, yeah, you don't think about their social relations and what they might look like. So even things like the the symbolic relevance of a litter tray that particular cats like to sit in and, and how that becomes a meeting spot and facilitates particular relationships that you need to maintain. And yeah, I know you have cats, so I'm sure you've got cat insights. Oh yeah, that's that's such a fascinating thing. When I teach introduction to sociology, like social 101, I kind of start off talking about culture and um and I push back on this notion that culture is something uniquely human. Well, if we start thinking about what is culture, lots of I mean, really any animal species also has that. But I wasn't even thinking about like in in that sense, which oh, this is cool. Now I'm very interested. But what I would give as an example is orcas, killer whales. And they have their own cultures. And I think that was highlighted in the Blackfish film, the documentary, because they would have orcas pulled from different parts of the world and put into these um, tanks together. And they wouldn't even speak the same language. They wouldn't have the same vocalizations or body language because they were from different cultures, different communities. Yeah, very interesting. You said you had a second one. What was the second one? Oh, my second one. I love this. This is something I always trotted out for students when I was teaching in our sociology and animals course. And um, it's the practico-discursive map Matthew Cole and Kate Stewart use. And it's just, a, it's such a fantastic visual tool. I'm sure you're familiar with it. But um, 
Yeah, and basically they're talking about the way that non-human animals are defined and categorized according to their relations to humans. And so humans tend to start with what we want to do with animals, and then we either make them sort of sensible or non-sensible. We can either see what their lives are like and interact with them, or we can't. We either objectify them or allow them to have subjective capabilities based on what we want to do with them. And it's such a simple idea, but they use this map in a way that makes it really immediately apparent to students and also people in non-animal conferences. It's very useful where yeah. you can take kind of a single species like a rabbit and show how they are spread across this map and the way that we kind of relate to them and the way that they're visible really depends on if we want to treat a rabbit as, you know, a pet or if we categorize them as a, a pest, which is, I'm using air quotes, you can't see them, it's not useful. Um, or whether they're meat or whether they're the Easter bunny and all of the meanings we have around these roles we do to a kind of a single animal but we don't see that we treat them very differently depending on the way that we categorize them. And I think that map is a really useful tool to giving people a visual of this is how much we socially construct animals. It's not innate, it's not biological, it's very social. So that's kind of the quickest tool I've found that's really effective. Yeah, so for those folks who are interested in learning more about that, um, that can be found in their book, Our Children and Other Animals, which is part of a project where they're looking at how all these ideas about the symbolic uh, roles of non-human animals is culturally constructed and a lot of that happens in childhood through socialization but if you're also you want to hear them explain it in their own words that they just did a podcast episode last week so this is being recorded june 22nd 2020 so last week on always for animal rights which i think is a canadian podcast and so matthew and kate were on there discussing this this tool. So yeah. Oh, that was a good choice. Mm. All right. Let's move on because I'm getting really uh, into these, these research topics you've chosen. Yeah, good ones. All right. So what about <clears throat> new stuff on the horizon? So this is what I've been asking everybody who comes on the podcast because folks are from different parts of the world. They're in different sub-disciplines. So what do you think is going on right now in sociology in your neck of the woods? Um, a new development that you think is really, really exciting or interesting? Uh, so at the moment, I'm really interested in this idea of, of a sociology for animals and what it means to do sociology for animals rather than just about them. And I think we've seen a few people talking about different aspects of this. So Nick Taylor and Lindsay Hamilton have a book on multi-species ethnography, where you look at kind of the methodological approaches to doing research with animals. And Erica Cudworth kind of talks about sociology and advocacy and how we can see more of a path between you know, describing the way that things are and, and what we're actually supposed to do about them. And, and Kay Peggs writes about, you know, the animal advocacy agenda. And we have all of these different elements of research around methods and ethics and the way that you write your research, which I think raises the question, you know, what are we actually doing as researchers when we're trying to do research with animals, when we're trying to do research for animals? So it's this thing that I've kind of been thinking about a lot. And we have a few people working in the area to just sort of try to unpack what actually are our methods as sociologists and what are we actually physically doing when we do research and what does that mean for the animals that we're researching? Should we be bringing them in? Is research a burden that we're inflicting on animals? And yeah. Yes, I guess this harkens back to the old Weberian late 19th century notion of what sociology should be and it should be objective and value-free wherever possible. But Weber was also quite um, cognizant of the fact that no scientist is ever going to be fully objective. And mm -hmm. now we're looking at um, sociology today, which is very intersectionally focused, where race, gender, class is uh, a major area of research for sociologists. But when it comes to bringing species into that, it tends to be this 
kind of villainization of what we do. So I think it was really good of you to highlight Kay Peggs' article. It's an old, slightly older article. It is basically, it's called, yeah, it's called The Animal Advocacy Agenda. And she highlights what I think a lot of sociologists doing our work get frustrated with is that if you do anything related to animals that may even remotely seem as though it has an activist bent, it definitely gets disparaged. And I know for me personally, I, I really want to do some research on this just to see, like, I, like back in the day, I think Nick and I were thinking about this, Nick Pendergrass, this is some years ago, we were going to submit, maybe it wasn't him, somebody else. We were going to submit um, fake, um, fake emails to different journal journals and say, would you public, would you think this would be appropriate to publish in your journal just to see if they oh, would, wow. you know, just to see if it had animals in it, then like, Oh no. Cause what would happen to me? It's like, Oh, you need, no matter where I would, what the topic is. And I honestly, I don't really do very much in animals in society. My, most of my research is actually on humans. I study animal rights and activists and vegans and social movement stuff. But what would happen is I would submit to these journals and they would say, oh, this is about animals. Go publish it in Journal for Critical Animal Studies, which is uh, peer reviewed, but it's like an open access, basically activist journal. And it's not not going to get you really much traction in the larger field. It's only really read by other people in our small subfield. And especially if you like now that I'm in the UK, I can't publish in those kinds of journals anymore because in the UK system, uh, our universities are heavily funded by how the fact of how many high impact journal articles have we published as a school. And so if I'm publishing in these open access, like activist journals, it's not going to, I can't. And, but then it's not even just a matter of, you know, saving my career. It's also a matter of, I want to, I want other people to read it. I want to have my research in larger sociology journals where other sociologists can read it and be impacted by it. But what happens is that we tend to be ghettoized in these, and these uh, smaller animal journals because of this concept of we're biased in some way. So I think you're really right to be pointing to the fact that there's starting to become a disgruntlement amongst us having to compromise in order to continue do doing what we're doing. And we'll talk about, about this later in a future <clears throat> podcast, but this is kind of the reason why we, you and I decided we wanted to do this International Association for Vegan Sociologists to make it very clear that this it's sociology for animals should mean sociology for animals but in practice that has meant people who are doing all kinds of different stuff related to animals might be included so people who don't see any problem whatsoever with human supremacy may even be normalizing that in their research and then for you and i we're both um convening the sections on animals for our respective sociological associations and it's the same kind of deal i was just emailing the woman who runs our social media today because she wanted to create a, a guide, a how-to for people who volunteer to post on Twitter and Facebook on behalf of our section. And it included all this explicitly vegan stuff. Don't post this. You can post this. Make sure it's supporting animal rights. Da, 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 da. And I had to write back to her and said, if, if we post that, if we make this part of our association or section, we're going to get flack. We're going to get pushback. We're going to get people leaving in protest. And it's just freaking frustrating. Absolutely. And I always find it so hard to kind of manage that line between, you know, we wanted to be recognized by an association. And I know we've had conversations about how important it is to have animal sociology recognized by your official association. And the Australian Association has been wonderful and they've been so supportive. But to do that, you really have to be able to engage with people working in more mainstream animal studies that do kind of support exploitative fields 
And I think in some ways there's a value to having these shared spaces where it brings, you know, welfareists and animal rights into conversation and we get to have those discussions and maybe develop our ideas a little bit further. But I also think it's really important to have kind of the space we're trying to create with the IAVS where you have people who can talk where animal animal use is just off the table and you can start reimagining what society might look like and what kinds of things we want to pursue when we don't have people kind of coming in with animal exploitation ideas. I think we need to have that space and have those conversations as well. And it's definitely unique to what we do because when I was responding to the woman who runs our social media today, I actually went and looked at the other sections for race, gender, uh, sexualities, and none of them explicitly had any statement on, okay, we support, you know, we're pro, <laughs> we're pro women, we're pro transgender people, we're anti-racism. They don't have to say that. Mm-hmm. So what I had to tell her is like, why don't you just email them and ask them like, how do they negotiate this without putting the philosophies out there? But I think they have the luxury of not having to make their philosophies explicit. They never are going to have to worry about someone joining their section who's a member of the KKK. You know what I mean? Or yep. thinks that you know, women should be in the kitchen. Like they don't have to deal with that. Whereas we have to deal with. Um, so for instance, I posted a uh, a letter to the listserv back in March when the coronavirus thing was really hitting off. We just got into lockdown here in the UK, and I signed off for with with a simple statement that the time for veganism is now. And it wasn't on behalf of the section. It was just like my own personal. Like here's my thoughts as a professional. And I got pushback. I got pushback. And there was one person who was a member and they actually worked with farmers and they weren't just not vegan. They were anti-vegan and did, said if they were associated with the section, which if the section became a vegan section, that would tarnish their career and they didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Definitely. And it comes back to that tainted scholarship idea that Rhoda Wilkie talks about as well, that you kind of become like a tainted scholar if you're if you're an actively vegan sociologist. But yeah. Whereas okay. public research and race are, are, goes without saying, they're going to be explicitly anti-racist. People who do sex and gender are going to be feminists. We just know. But that mm-hmm. when you put that on the animal context, ooh. I know. Yeah. All right. So- and yeah- People ask me outside of animal studies, if they say, you know, why are you vegan? What do you think? And there's a whole lot of arguments. But if you just say, you know, I I research critical animal studies and I don't think I can eat my research participants, that seems a bit weird. They kind of go, oh, yeah, that does seem a bit weird. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) So that's a good piece of advice. Well, what about for, so I've just kind of set the stage. And this is really the premise for the whole podcast is I, I think we're all pretty much aware that this field is a new field. It is it faces some institutional barriers. And for some folks that I've talked to, just like myself, I didn't even know that this was a subfield until I was well into my PhD. And if I'd known about it earlier, I always wonder, like, what could I what would I have done differently? So for those of folks who are listening who are interested in this field, either as students or as early career scholars or scholars who are just thinking about changing it up, what kind of advice would you have for folks who are interested in pursuing this field? Well, I mean, I got very lucky in that when I was an undergraduate, I I was thinking about animal sociology, but I wasn't really engaged with it. But I happen to have a very exciting animal sociologist working at the university. So I was lucky that I had a supervisor right off the bat who was working in animal sociology and who could kind of validate the fact that I wanted to study this and that it was a thing. But um, even within that, I think going to conferences and things like that, I realized pretty quickly it was important to build your own support network. Yeah. And I, 
I really made an effort to go to as many animal things as I could. I'm sure I met you. I think I met you in Canada at one of the animal conferences. Yeah. Yeah. In Canada and then one in New Zealand. Yeah. We're all over the place. And you were supposed to come here this summer for our conference that got canceled. I'm very (laughs) sad that was canceled, but fair enough. It's understandable. Um, Yeah, but I kind of made an effort to talk to as many animal people as I could. And I think also being kind of a working class first in family PhD student, which a lot of people are, you have a little bit of insecurity around just straight up talking to people and emailing them. Yeah. But that's kind of what I've always done. So I just sort of email people and be like, hey, I really liked your article. And most people are really friendly and trying to make as many kind of friendships and relationships as I could. Not even just for, you know, it helps you if you want to write an article and someone wants to be a friend. That's nice. But also just for emotional support and validation. And if you've got an idea, someone actually wants to hear about it. All of that, I think, is very important no matter where you're at having some kind of affirmation and my second piece would be to try and be a well-rounded sociologist as much as you can I was told pretty early on by someone not my supervisor who said when you get a job you are not going to get a job from an animal person you're probably going to get a job from another sociologist so you know work in applied sociology work in as many different things as you can teach as broadly as you can yeah. And I think this was good in two ways because it, it built up my skill set a lot. The current job I'm in isn't animal studies focused. And I got that job based on my research skills, not my animal skills. Yeah. Um, but it also meant that I was put in a lot of situations where I could insert a little bit of animal studies that yes. otherwise had it before. So I opened up a lot of, you know, if I was teaching in a domestic violence course, they might not have thought about domestic violence in animals, but I was there and I was an animal person and they guess they'd heard of it. So could I do a guest lecture on domestic violence in animals? Or if I was teaching a gender course, could I do a week on ecofeminism, how gender and, and anthroparchy kind of intersect? And so I kind of liked that. It really bolstered that I could spread animal studies a little bit as well as building up my skills. Yeah, I think you're right to highlight that as a a positive, not a negative. I did the same thing every single class I've ever taught, even social psychology, like everything I've put deviants, <laughs> taught deviants for yeah. several years. I put an animal week in every single one of those. And you're absolutely right. It's not just a matter of let me squeeze this in, but it also shapes your own research. So for instance, when I was getting my PhD, I taught a gender class and that set me on a career path. I mean, I still do feminist. Feminism is still a major part of my research today, all because I signed up to teach that class as a PhD student. Mm-hmm. And I stuck in like one week of animal stuff. And the more I started learning about that field, the more I realized it can speak to my field. So it's not just a matter of being strategic as far as finding your career, but it's also, I think, healthy for us to teach a little bit outside of our field. So maybe don't look at it as a kind of a negative. And then also for people who are going on the academic route, I think it's pretty much the case, unless you're in a really conservative or really broke university, that if you stick around long enough, eventually they'll let you do a class in animals, basically. I mean, that's been the case everywhere I've taught. Yeah. Yeah. And people seem genuinely interested, even if it's a novelty to them, they might not be critical animal studies as I might be. But some people are just like, oh, that seems strange and new. Can you bring something in? That would be exciting. And I think it also works for, especially because usually programs are looking, what's a way we can get students in the door? And that's Mm -hmm. usually one of the ways because people from all over the university are going to see that in the catalog. Ooh, animals, that looks like something I can fill up an elective with. And then you may have them thinking sociologically and then have them switch over. I mean, that's what, this is one way you can sell it is what I'm I'm saying. Um, 
I also wanted to go back to your first point before we part ways because I think that networking bit is extremely important. I am also working class first PhD and all that kind of stuff. So I fumbled through graduate school, not really knowing what the hell I was doing. And I had a colleague who was in philosophy and she does what I do. And she was such an amazing networker. And I just remember looking at all these amazing relationships she had and all the doors that those relationships opened for her. And I was very jealous about that because I'm like very introverted in a lot of ways. I really don't like going to conferences. I don't like to do a lot of this <laughs> kind of stuff, but I knew that this is one of the ways and, and truly looking back over my career, I can think of some of those people that have been so kind and, and mentored me. For instance, Jessica Greenbaum, who was uh, a guest last week, really went out of her way to write letters for me, to support me, to give me advice, just to give me space to like, complain about things or whatever. But for those of you who are interested in going to this field, I mean, it, especially if you don't have a family history of graduate school, it's not just a matter of going to the classes and writing the papers and all that kind of thing. You really do have to be your own kind of PR team. You have to go out and make a presence for yourself. You do have to make yourself known to other people. You do have to do that uncomfortable, awkward stuff of introducing yourself and just know that everybody probably feels just as awkward as you do. <laughs> and I mean, there's some people just love that stuff, but I think a lot of students, like it's just the name of the game and we're, we're all aware that's what, that's what conferences are for. You go there, do you meet other people, you email people. And uh, one of the other things that you could do if you're early career, I like this tip. I saw this in um, kind of an academic how-to book one many years ago. If you publish an article, print out that article and write a handwritten note on it and actually physically mail it to folks. And you'd be surprised at people who will respond. And those are the types of things that have impacts on people. Oh, like we get emails all day long, but this is like an actual like physical thing you get in the mail. People don't get mail like that very much anymore. So just things like that, just kind of put it on your agenda. It's not just a matter of, uh, I mean, you're not going to find, you're really probably not going to find a job. So here come teach animals. Um, you're going to have to kind of carve your own way. So you have to be your own cheerleader. So cool. Um, so I think we're almost out of time. So why don't you tell us where we can learn more about your wonderful, shining, special, spectacular self and your work? Excellent. Uh, Twitter is the best place. I really like academic Twitter. That it's probably where I spend most of my time. So my name is spelt funny. I'm pretty easy to find, but it's just Zoe underscore Sutton on Twitter. I'm also on Facebook and the usual academia research gate and LinkedIn. But um. Twitter would be your main bet. And you should also check out the International Association of Vegan Sociologists because that yeah. is where things will be happening. Thanks for listening to Sociology and Animals. I hope you found it helpful and informative. If you want to learn more about the sociological study of society and animals, you can check out the website of the Animals and Society section of the American Sociological Association or my own website at coreyleevren.com. You can also check out the International Association for Vegan Sociologists, and the website for that is vegansociology.com. Feedback and suggestions can be submitted to myself at coreyren at gmail.com. That's C-O-R-E-Y dot W-R-E-N-N -N at gmail.com. If you liked this episode, be sure to share the series with others. The music for this podcast was provided by Ode to Sleep, a band local to where I live here in East Kent, England. Ode to Sleep explores various topics with their music, including human and animal rights, environmental issues, equality, and mental health. 
Their debut EP will be released in September 2020 through Is No I N Team Records. Their single featured here is called Captive Audience and is available now on all streaming platforms. Until next time, this is Dr. Corey Wren signing off. All the best.